Please begin by seeing what's here as you arrive, as you land here in body, heart, mind. And the encouragement is to arrive in this moment of time and space, which is just now. And the first foundation of mindfulness is about the body and establishing an embodied awareness. Letting your awareness, letting the awareness permeate your physical experience. Meaning become aware of the body experientially. Whether it's the posture, the form the body has taken on the cushion or bench or chair or lying down or standing up. And knowing the body directly by feeling it or sensing it. Not from a distance, but with the aliveness that's sitting here in each seat. And you'll notice if the body feels comfortable or uncomfortable or tight or relaxed. Or... If it's warm or cool or hungry or full or neither. And as we begin to let the awareness saturate, saturate the bodily experience of being alive. And we also want to be aware of the fact that the body is breathing. 
And it's very skillful to spend some time, a few minutes, 20 minutes, the whole meditation, if you wish, simply being embodied and aware, getting here now for this moment and these moments of your life. mindfulness of the body and the breathing can bring a sense of collectedness, composure, centeredness, presence, the presence of awareness. And we can, of course, rest in that presence of awareness itself and be aware of whatever is known, whatever is here, whatever arises in the space of awareness itself. And in that way, we can include any thoughts, ideas, beliefs, memories, plans, not as some story to be captivated by, but simply to be aware of the arising of thoughts and ideas and memories and plans, and fantasies and opinions. while we rest in the space of awareness, of knowing. And of course, this spaciousness, this openness includes being aware of sounds, sound of my voice, any sounds that are occurring in the room where you're sitting or standing, any sounds your body's making, any sounds that come from outside of the room, resting in the space of awareness and hearing, sound appearing, being known as sound,
And this openness, this spaciousness, of course, includes any emotions, moods, feelings, mental states like calm or the feeling of joy or irritation or anger or sadness, grief, happiness, delight, whatever may be revealing itself, appearing organically, spontaneously in your consciousness, simply letting it be known. Without being enchanted by it or mesmerized by it, just as we don't want to be enchanted or mesmerized by the thoughts. Letting ourselves be open, aware, present, mindful, body full, heart full of this living moment that we call now. Letting the now be in the foreground of awareness.
So tonight I would like to talk a little bit about further thoughts following the murder of George Floyd and also what's been happening in the country for the past uh, week. Uh, and my, some of my thoughts and feelings about uh, what it means to have a living practice in this time, in this place, in this age, with what's going on here in this country. Um, and, uh, and personally, I feel a little bit excited about the fact that there may be some potential to really change 400 years of racism in this country at this time. And that seems really radical to me, and I'm excited about that possibility. And I'm uh, heartbroken about all the murders that have brought it to the foreground, but I am hoping it's a tipping point where we can change reality, change the way it's been for really 400 years in one form or another in terms of this country having been built on racism from the get-go. Um, and I want to begin with, a, um, I'm going to read you something from the New York Times. It was either yesterday or today from Jenna Wortham, who's a writer for the Times. <clears throat> she said, for roughly three months before uh, George Floyd's death, Americans were living in a state of hypervigilance and anxiety, coping with feelings of uncertainty, fear, and vulnerability things many Black Americans experience on a regular basis. So she's giving a, a context for the potency of what's happening now and why. And in my language, I would say it a little differently, meaning in terms of she's pointing at the unique situation that's been created by COVID-19 and that we've all been living with. And the way I would say it is, oh, America's been on retreat for a few months because of this disease that we're all dealing with. And when I say retreat, it means our usual reality was not available to us. And so it starts to open us up and often make that openness can make us feel vulnerable or uneasy or at dis-ease because it's unfamiliar to us. And, um, and so she's contextualizing it that that's where we were at when George Floyd was murdered. And then she said, right, um, at the same time, social distancing meant much of daily life, school, work, meetings, parties, weddings, birthday celebrations, they were all migrating to screens. And she says, it seems we, we just co uh, created newfound trust and intimacy with our phones and computers when the gruesome parade of deaths, deaths began to pro proceed began a procession among them. Let me say that again. It seems we'd created newfound trust and intimacy with our phones and computers, with the screens, right? When a gruesome parade of deaths began to, a pro procession across them. Ahmed uh, Arbery was killed in Georgia. Uh, Brianna Taylor was in bed when the police entered her apartment and sprayed her with bullets. Uh, 
Nina Pop was found stabbed to death in Missouri. Tony McDade was gunned down by police in Tallahassee, Florida. And uh, by the time the outrage and despair over uh, Mr. Floyd's death filled our feeds, right, our screens, the tinderbox was ready to explode. And, and I appreciate her clarity about seeing what was happening, why it was happening, how it was happening, and how the whole context of how we were living then um, impacted each of us, whoever we are, whoever we, you know, however we identify in terms of race or gender or whatever ism you one might have, that that's part of our reality that uh, then got exploded with the various deaths that were occurred, really murders that occurred. And so the question then is for us, for Dharma practitioners, for people who are devoted to waking up, uh, is how do we respond with wisdom and courage and compassion and kindness and clarity and fierceness as needed for what's happening? And uh, I, uh, the word courage is often associated with warriors or explorers or people bravely facing danger or doing something new, right? But that's not how it's understood so much in Buddhism. It's not demonstrated by aggression or ambition, right? It's really about uh, a courage of the heart, right? that the, the courage that's recognized in the Dharma is the willingness to open our hearts to reality and stay present with what's true and to see what's here and then to respond appropriately, respond with our intelligence and our kindness and our wisdom and with our fierceness as needed. And so the courageous heart is really one who's, who's okay to open to the world um, and to care about the world no matter what's happening. <clears throat> and of course, we've seen so many examples of that in how people are responding to the murders and demonstrating across the country and really across the world, which is just amazing but of course the whole world's been in the COVID-19 retreat and so the vividness of the videos and the seeing of what's happening is worldwide and everybody's seeing it and everybody not I don't know about everybody but so many people are sick of it and want to be done with it and want to take action and want a different world that we can live in together a different world that we could live in together and that seems so important to me personally and as part of my practice. It's the core of my practice as always. What, when anybody asks me, what did I ever want from practice? I wanted freedom. I wanted freedom and I still want freedom. And that's all I'm seeing that's wanted by what's happening is freedom. Uh, that whether it's, you know, I mean, all the, the murders are happening 
as part of keeping people on free for 400 years in, in whatever form it's taken, uh, you know, for the uh, government, for the uh, people in authority, for the dominant culture to have rule over, you know, black bodies and also, of course, brown bodies and other bodies of different cultures, countries, races, ethnicities. And, um, and one of the things that's impressed me is the wisdom of how people have been demonstrating uh, at times. So, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the demonstrations I saw was a nighttime march in Minneapolis, right, where George was, was murdered. Um, and um, uh, it showed a crowd, it was about 400 people, they knelt for five minutes, right? And, and they knelt in the face of the police, right? They just knelt there and they got down on, you know, a knee. And it's the same when I saw George Floyd's son, Quincy um, Mason, he walked through a crowd to the site where he, his father had been murdered. And, and then at that memorial, right, which was created by the community, Right, he, he also dropped a knee. And it reminded me of something that I think we know about in the Bay Area, which is Colin Kaepernick, who was a great football player for the 49ers, who did a very radical thing at one point. He took a knee during the, the American you know, anthem, right? The Star Spangled Banner. Um, and he took a knee to protest racism and police brutality. And this is four years ago or so. And he did that to protest in a way that was clear and direct and uh, peaceful. And he did it and he um, got a lot of people to join him. And there was such a huge reaction from the authorities, from the people in charge, including the commissioner. And of course, Donald Trump, when he ran for office, screamed about it, the fact that people were kneeling during the, the anthem, right? And how that they should, he, they should kick those people out. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm editing what he actually said, but it's just like, you know, he did, he, you know, Colin Kaepernick did such a courageous thing to stand up for what he believed in, which was freedom, which is, which is a, being a human being and being free to be himself, no matter what his ism is, right? In this case, in, in terms of him being a black man. And, um, and of course, you all, I don't know if you all know, but, you know, I like sports, so I know things like this. He's never played since, right? He's never played since, which shows you what people in power do when they're threatened by somebody, when they're threatened, when the dominant culture is threatened, it uses its power and power, money. Money is power, great power, in addition to all its armed forces, which Trump keeps trying to use uh, in, to deal with the, the demonstrations instead of, any, instead of using uh, 
any kind of sanity to hear and listen to what are people saying? What do people need? What are people upset about? In what way do we, and what I'm saying we, I'm saying all of us together, how do we have to change to make this country what it's supposed to be, what its ideal is, which is free, a free country, right? And of course, since this has all been happening, even Raja Goodall, who's the commissioner of the NFL, has since apologized to players for not listening to them when they were kneeling, right? For not listening more. And it's taken these murders, numerous murders. I mean, and even the ones I've named, I mean, these are just current, right? This has been going on for years in this country. Right. So I'm appreciating Colin Kaepernick today. I also saw a, a, a black man, 19 year old marcher, who wore a face mask inscribed with the words, I can't breathe, uh, who knelt. And he said it took a lot of guts. He talked about uh, Colin Kaepernick. He said it took a lot of guts for him to do that, a lot of heart. He knows what the community needs. It needs that strength. And he was saying to stand up for what you believe in, no matter what your position, right? No matter what your status. And partly I'm saying this to all of us to, to, um, to, support our wish for all beings to be free. And that wish is not just a great um, Walt Disney Buddhist idea about what does it mean in our country, in our time now, and how can we each support it in whatever way possible. And I don't mean that means everybody has to go out into the street. And I've done plenty of street demonstrations in my life. I'm not drawn to go out much these days. I'm old enough, so that's not my thing. But there are other ways for me to contribute on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. What can I do now? What can I do today? How can I be real in my daily life to keep undercutting the foundation of racism that we've all grown up with? We've all grown up with. That's been part of our world. And so I was thinking of today both about courage and compassion. And so I looked up courage. Courage, Winston Churchill said, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. And he also said, courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. That's good dharma, because it's not one or the other, it's both. We want to listen, we want to hear what's needed, we want to hear what's true, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. And then we also want to speak and say what's true and what's here. And of course, compassion in Buddhism is actually, it's translated very commonly in the Pali text as a quivering of the heart, a quivering of the heart in light of suffering. And it, it really means, to me, it means, oh, we're touched or we're moved or we're, we're um, uh, affected 
by the suffering. We, there's a resonance with the suffering. We know it. And it doesn't mean we know it exactly. We, doesn't, we don't know exactly what's happened to each person, each, each one of us. But we know when somebody's suffering, we can feel it. And we can trust that feeling and start to see what, what's needed. And of course, uh, to be to compassion is such a, a great word. It means with passion. And I never understood that for many years. I could, because I was like, passion meant, you know, you're doing what you want, or, you know, is it really, you know, I passionately, you know, loved to play baseball when I was a kid, or I passionately loved to ride bicycles. And I like passion. I, I think passion's great. But the passion that compassion is created from means with passion. And of course, passion originally was a passion uh, having to do with the suffering of pain, meaning the suffering of Christ on the cross. And so it's an archetypal understanding of passion that compassion with passion means it has draws its meaning from. And, and of course, Christ was a great Western archetype embodying both um, uh, 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 suffering and freedom, right? And, and this great archetype of compassion, right? Turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor, neighbor as thyself. I mean, it's so simple on that level. I mean, that's all we actually have to do. Love, love our neighbors like we would love ourselves. And of course, everybody is actually our neighbor. Even the people we don't like are our neighbors. And I don't mean you have to like everybody, but you could love them. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with everybody. You can still love them. And you can disagree with them fiercely. And that's also compassionate. And so I, one way I see the demonstrations is in this expression of compassion for the suffering that's occurred for 400 years of suffering that, you know, isn't going to stop tomorrow, but also for the uh, suffering of, all, of, the, of the whole history, including the people who are perpetrating the suffering, because they are suffering also. It's not one or the other, actually. One is clear, as obvious, is like no-brainer, but also the suffering of thinking that dominating will make you happy is just pure suffering and, and does nothing but, but uh, perpetuate suffering over and over again. <clears throat> and so compassion becomes so important to trust our capacity to open a life and not be armored or not be held back. And it doesn't mean we have to open fully at every moment, but it means we know how to open when it's necessary and when we have the balance. And of course, Rilke, the German poet, he said, ultimately, ultimately it is on our vulnerability that we depend. And that's not just a poetic ideal. Ultimately, it is on our vulnerability that we depend. It's really a living reality because we're all vulnerable here together when we open to the truth and to open to the truth of suffering and open to the truth of suffering 
excuse me, uh, in this country. And you hear it in the leaders that we care about and that have we admire or that I care about and admire, and I'll name two people of color, Martin Luther King, of course, he said, never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instruments of love. And of course, compassion is just one of the expressions of love. And Mahatma Gandhi, he had the courage, tremendous courage. He was jailed, he was beaten, and he persevered through difficulties without giving in to bitterness and despair. And he changed the world. He changed the domination that England had had over India for I don't know how many hundred years, you know. He changed the world through his diligence and heartfulness and his clarity and his presence and his love of the truth and of freedom and uh, quite radical in his way. And so part of the paradox of our practice, of Buddha's practice is, right, dukkha. We're dealing with dukkha. And dukkha is is, uh, suffering, if you're unfamiliar with the term, suffering in all its forms, from small forms to great forms. Um, uh, But it's also part of the four truths, right? There's dukkha, there's a cause of dukkha, there's the end of dukkha. And then there's a practice and path that leads to the end of dukkha. And they're all connected. You don't get to the end of dukkha without going through dukkha. And so our world is, pain is part of our world, uncertainty, injustice is part of our world. And in this vulnerable human life, right, in our vulnerable human lives, every loss is also an opportunity um, to uh, stand up with dignity, as Martin Luther King said, and to let the heart open and to see what we can do to let that heartfulness flood the world. You know, a very famous quote about from the Buddha about a heart as wide as the world. This is from my friend Ruth King talking about compassion. She said, compassion isn't just a feeling, compassion is a verb. Great line from Ruth. Compassion isn't just a feeling, compassion is a verb. Uh, It's a quivering of the heart. The, The world's heart is on fire and race is at its core. What's happening in the world, in our world today, is the result of past actions. The bitter racial seeds from past beliefs and actions are blooming all around us, reflecting not only a division of races that is rooted in ignorance and hate, but also and more solely a division of the heart. And Ruth's a great teacher and fierce teacher and not afraid to be fierce about what she understands and what she's lived through. 
Another Buddhist teacher, Sharon Salzberg, she said, loving kindness, compassion are the basis for wise, powerful, sometimes gentle, sometimes fierce actions that can really make a difference in our own lives and in the lives of others. And I want to just, I'm just keep emphasize the fierceness of compassion, of love. It's not just passive. It's not just being good or nice or, or quiet or, or uh, passive. It's active also. There's a real yes to compassion and, and a no, right? And so compassion says no to things. It says no to abuse, right? Physical abuse, you know, sexual abuse emotional abuse or, or racism, note of racism or note of violence, right? And it's a no that doesn't come from hate, but out of an unwavering care for aliveness, for what's here. It's really the fierce sword of compassion. And it has to do, it comes from our staying present and being aware of what's true, which is where the listening becomes so important. This is from a friend of mine, a woman that I've worked with and also um, um, been a student practitioner with also. She's a very successful black woman. She said in my 41 years, I've come out as both a queer person and a survival of sexual assault. Coming out is a powerful act. It means that everyone who knows you knows something personally that's impacted you. It changes people to know someone. If enough, change, if enough people change, then it changes the world. And it's why being personal and being real is so important. And she goes on to talk about her reaction to seeing George Floyd being murdered. I just believe when I start to read this, she said this morning when I finally watched the video of George Floyd calling out for his mother with a white policeman knee, uh, police officer's knee on his neck, I wondered if my cousin Brady called out for his mother before he died in police custody 20 some years ago. I know my cousin Andre did before he was shot and killed by police two years ago. Deadly police brutality in the black community is the story of my family, the backdrop of my life, and I'm coming out about it now. However you know me as a friend, a community member, advisor, a woman's circle sister, industry colleague, spiritual student, or neighbor, understand that you know a black person whose life and family have been irrevocably harmed by police brutality. You know someone who relives it, person who relives personal trauma every time the police snuff out another beautiful black life. Please let that change you.
you know, and it does, it does. It, you know, it's one thing even to see George Floyd be murdered, but I know this woman and love this woman. And it's like, it's what we need to do. We all need to hear each other, listen to each other, see each other, get each other, you know, and somebody I know was at the, uh, actually a few people I know were at the memorial for George Floyd in Minneapolis. And that happened the other day and I watched it on TV. And uh, Sharpton, Mr. Sharpton, Al Sharpton kept saying, get your knee off of our necks. It's been 400 years. Get your knee off of my neck. And that's what's needed. And it's and what's needed is for all of us to get our knees, our collective knees, off of everybody's neck in that way. Because it's a collective dynamic. It's a collective bias. And we may not be personally... Uh, um, you know, a racist or prejudiced person, but we live in that world. And for us to be quiet, silence is, is not passivity. Silence means we're supporting it. And so in what ways we can speak up daily as needed when it's appropriate, when, when racism is among our family or friends, or a community, or at the, at the store, or wherever. Can we start to speak up? And so we keep taking the taking our knee off of people's necks. And I'll end with a quote from President Obama. Remember when we had a real president? Um, and he talked about how courage and compassion mean to see the truth, right? And to respond. And when the, uh, the um, Marriage Equality Act was passed a few years ago, he said, we are all created equal. And today this equality is enshrined into law, right? Meaning that anybody could get married because they loved each other, which was like a no-brainer on one level, but was a radical change in reality. He said, he said, this is the result of countless small acts of courage by millions of people across decades who stood up and slowly made an entire country realize that love is love. So I'm going to end with that. And of course, I want to hear from you, your thoughts, feelings, reactions, agreements, disagreements. Please raise your hand, go to the participants uh, button at the bottom of your screen so you can find a hand raising from there. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, Rachel. No, Rachel. Are you unmuted, Rachel? Uh, yes. Yeah, great. Hi, Eugene and everybody. Um, 
as Buddhists going through this process. Pardon, you what? Uh, yes, can you hear me? Yeah. As Buddhists going through this process, will we not have to also have compassion for the perpetrators? Yeah, of course. And and for Donald Trump, it's really hard for me to have compassion for him. I it's like the wall that I that I meet when I really try to be my best Buddhist, and I can't get past it. Well, can you get, can you, um, do you see you want to get rid of him? Is that true? Would you like to get rid of him, like yeah. not be the president? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. So, so that's a really fierce compassion, because that would help him, because he's suffering and he's inflicting suffering on, uh, you know, millions of people with his idiocy. And I really, first I was gonna give a talk about fascism, but I couldn't get past what's happening there because I think this is part of the reaction to fascism. And I think Donald Trump is a fascist and I do not want him reelected, but I don't hate Donald Trump. And he's, he's quite an ignorant being. And, but he's a very smart, ignorant being who knows how to manipulate the media like crazy. And he's good at it. And that's how he got elected president. And I don't trust him a bit. But I don't hate him. I hate what he does. And so start looking, see if you can see the suffering of him. And of course, this is true. If you really look at anybody, you can see their suffering. And, you know, this is, this may be a little Eugene-like and trite, but, you know, look how he has to always comb his hair a certain way, right? Because he's going bald a little bit. He doesn't want to be going bald. He's narcissistic. That's suffering. Thoughts? Rachel? Um, also, um, you know, that police officer. Yeah, Do we not, if we're going to truly have, you know, this view of compassion, would we not discriminate? We would give compassion to Sure. Would, but how do, we, how do we go about doing that? By helping them. By teaching me, do you know how somebody told me how little training uh, many police officers actually have? Like California police officers get a decent amount of training, but in many, many parts of the United States, they get so little training, right? And also, the person today was telling me police officers take a lot of steroids to build up muscle. Right, he's and this person was an athlete that I'm friends with, and he he's he knows athletes. They've taken lots of steroids. He said their 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 anger is like that, partly because of their um, medication that they're using to make themselves better, stronger police people. And so the the key here is because I think what might help you is not to just see the uh, actions that you hate and that you're going to stand up against. But actually, these people in jobs, they don't know how to do. 
right? They're supposed to protect everybody. It's that simple. They're not trained to do that. And so you're seeing their suffering get expressed. Keep, keep seeing the bigger picture, which is something Buddhism teaches us. It really, because they're just human beings. And of course, even Donald Trump there, everybody's trying to do the best they can. But it doesn't mean they're wise. Okay. Sure. Lloyd. Lloyd, you're unmuted. Hi, Lloyd. Hi. Uh, yeah, I just, I wanted to say uh, this week, you know, based on your talk last week and talking a lot to my older daughter, I've never been very good about, uh, you know, I've sort of always wanted to have people like me, so I've kind of skirted away from controversial issues. But like I said, after your talk last week and a lot of talk with my older daughter, I always found myself in a situation where somebody who I really um, spent a lot of time with and I have a lot of regard for, but I could see from his pers from the way that he was speaking, um, he was a lot more concerned about the rioting and the destruction of the property than uh, murder of uh, innocent people. <laughs> anyway, you know, for my my normal pers my normal uh, way of being in the world would have been to just maybe not say anything, but I didn't, and uh, and in the end, I you know we ended the conversation, and I said, look, I I I don't express myself that well, but um, I want to send you this. 20-minute talk by Trevor Noah about uh, yeah, yeah. and it was a very well done talk and yeah. and I I know the talk yeah so I, I was I was I was reluctant because of that nature to receive <clears throat> confrontation but I sent it and as each day went by and I never heard back from him you know I worried oh you know maybe that I'm going to lose him as a friend. But then it was like, you know what? If I lost him as a friend, well, then so be it, because this is that important to me. And I want him to know where I stand. And, and I want him to see me for, for, for what I believe in. And I want to stand up against this insanity, like you said, that's been going on for 400 years. So in the end, it... Uh, it, did you ever hear back from him, Lloyd? Never did, but but I'm feeling I'm I'm feeling very proud of myself um, sure. because because I for whatever for, as a kid that's I I've, I've always hidden who I am because um, my family were Jews and we lived in a very anti-Semitic area, so I learned how to hide that, uh -huh. um, and it this this is starting to feel pretty good for me. It's not really easy uh yesterday i went on a on a long bicycle ride with an ex-team that i used to race with and it felt really it felt really hard but it felt really good uh when people began talking about it to say you know i don't agree with you we saw a human being murdered 
Uh, I, I'm not in favor of rioting and breaking up stores, but that's nothing compared to the murders that have been going on. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to say yeah. that it, it, it feels for me like I'm maybe making a step in the right direction to try to do my part to end this. Great. Thank you, Lloyd. That, uh, you know, all sounds good to me. And I would make one suggestion. Call your friend. Yeah. And say, well, you know, I didn't hear back from you. I wondered what you thought. Did you, you know, because that I, I also heard that and I was really impressed with, you know, uh, a man who's, you know, a late night TV show host comedian who has more wisdom than the president of the United States, like no question. And, you know, it really, you know, and I, I really, I'm not a TV guy that way. You know, I only watch sports on TVs, basically. And so I couldn't even, I kept getting his name wrong. Was it Trevor Noah or Noah Trevor? And, and, but I sent that out to a lot of people because it was so, there was so much wisdom in it. He was so clear. Yeah, so thank you for doing that. And, and one last thing, you know, I, I, you know, I am also, and I have been very, very involved with trying to get Trump and the Republicans out of office. And, you know, for people that want to, there's a lot of things that we can do, write postcards, we can text. There's a lot of good things that we can do so, to ensure. Great. And so there, we've started a meditation and action page at SFI. Uh -huh. And I want to start putting things like that on the page so people can have access in one place where we can, where we can, how we can respond and how we can change this country. Okay. Thank you. Niru. Uh, Hi, Eugene. Hi. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Um, I wanted to, um, so after, I wanted to thank you first of all, last Sunday when you showed, um, expressed your emotion and also in, in full force. Um, and I, I did when I did go to um, the protest on Monday after that uh, in, the, in front of the city hall in San Francisco. And, um, and I, as I was coming back to work, I do lead the, the week daily meditation at work. So um, we, we offer that meditation time to George Floyd that day. Um, and it just dawned on me that how this absolute and relative reality, they're all kind of present in that moment. The absolute reality, absolute reality, and then relative reality. How both are so present at the uh -huh. moment. Yeah. Because in this re relative reality, conventional reality, we are, we are in this body. We cannot be free from our identities, race, gender, whatnot. Uh -huh. um, but then also absolute reality. There is this one awareness that we are all connected. Um, and and you cannot really ignore one for the other uh -huh. it has to coexist so um it was such no, a wait, wait it doesn't have to coexist they're both right here yeah <laughs> yeah they're both right here yeah um okay. so it was such a poignant sort of us as i was sitting and with other people it was such a poignant point um that 
and um, I just felt that you know that both reality existing at the same time, what that meant. Um, and one thing that I want to just add, so thank you for the teaching. And one thing I want to add is that um, I spent about three months. I lived in uh, South Africa, Cape Town for three months, mm -hmm. about 10 years ago. And that's when I learned about how racism, system, systemized racism actually can cultivate this learned helplessness in, in generations. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in a business school at the time. So I took this class uh, about leadership and I thought it will be typical leadership class about, you know, negotiation, strategy, etc. But this professor studied the first class of meditation and mm -hmm. he, he brought us, he brought some improv teach, um, actors and made us do improv. Um, and then at the end, in the last class, he shared a, so it was very atypical class from business perspective, but Mm -hmm. The last class he shared uh, his story. So he was like Tra Trevor Noah. He was born as a colored person. So the person who's mm -hmm. mixed, um, it, they're called colored in yeah. South Africa. And he lived in anger for his youth during, the, during his, he was, when he was younger. And then he actually learned from someone who was um, in the civil rights activist, who was a civil, civil rights activist in U.S. Uh, for black American um, how not to be angry, but also sit with uh, courage and the compassion in, against those racism. So long story short, he came back to South Africa after spending some time in U.S. in 1960s. Mm -hmm. he, he started studying uh, and then he started studying the servant leadership, which is how to serve the, as a leader, how can you serve um, mm -hmm. others better? And he actually told the class about going through some um, um, the clause, the legislat uh, legislation of the apartheid. Mm -hmm. And he said that from any renowned legal experts, apartheid, the law itself is such a well-written law. Mm -hmm. You cannot really argue. Mm -hmm. uh, and he pointed out that it's written by the, the, the very smart people in South mm -hmm. Africa at the time. Sure. So he said, basically the lesson from this class is that you cannot, you cannot be a leader without knowing yourself. Mm -hmm. and that's why you need to do meditate and so that was when I actually first experienced meditation mm -hmm. uh, how my journey started so I've been thinking about that moment uh, in the class um, this this past week too so I think everything is coming together personally and also collectively so I wanted to just share this story great thank you I hope that's true that everything's coming together per personally and collectively for all of us because uh, things need to change it's not just a nice idea. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I hope every, all of us keep working to make that change happen every day. I really want to encourage that in whatever way I can. And I'm still learning how to do it myself because it's a lived experience. And there's, uh, there was something else you said I was going to comment on, but gone. Go on, but uh, but yeah, I, oh yeah, that, you know, just uh, uh, not everybody knows that in uh, that in South Africa there are different colors, right? There's black and colored and white and etc. When I was there visiting Kitty Saran Tanisara with Pam, and Pam is a is um, Jewish, um, and but has slightly darker skin. 
people thought she was, she was colored in South Africa and it was good for her to be colored in South Africa, meaning she learned, we all learned something we didn't know about race in that way. And especially because her lineage is German Jewish. And so, and, and of course in Judaism, they do have racial distinction, what's called Sephardic and Ashkenazic, meaning Eastern European and North African. And people look different, you know, but, but she's not even from the North African tribe of Jews. She's from German Jewish, but somehow, you know, it all got mixed up and, and she ended up colored in South Africa. And it's so interesting. Um, it's one of, the, one of the things for us white people, not everybody here is white, but for white people, go around for a week and just wear a sign that says white person and see what happens. See how you feel when everybody's looking at you and they're seeing, oh, you're a white person, right? Because it's different if you're an Asian person or a black person or, you know, because the dominant culture categorizes people and white people aren't used to being categorized. Okay, thank you. Seema. Yeah. Hi. Hi. So I found myself bumping right into an a wall about this um, about a week and a half ago. I watched the Amy Cooper video. Video of the woman who called the police on a man who was saying, put your dog on a leash. In yes, and the, when he started to yeah. video her, she said, I'm gonna call him and tell them an African American man is, is threatening my life. Yeah. Um, it was hideous. And she got more and more hysterical when when 911 was kind of not snapping to it. Then she started sounding in her voice, he's threatening me. Um, and I hated her. I totally hated her. And I imagined in my mind talking to her, sending her an email, telling her what a jerk she was. I mean, she's, but she's getting more than she needs of that. Um, or as much as she needs of that. But what I tried to do, um, what I tried to do was imagine what it was like to be her. I don't do that very often, but I really can't stand to do it with Donald Trump. But here was somebody who's not quite, a, you know, it's not a Donald Trump. So I said, what is it? Yeah. Good. What would it be yeah. like Good. to be her? Yeah. What would it be like to meet her someplace? or if I had run into her in the park or whatever, and I didn't say, what an asshole you are. Um, it was really hard. It was really hard because- Wait, 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 wait. What was hard about it given she's a woman who was afraid and projecting all of her fear on this man who was bird watching for people who don't know that's right. what he was doing. He was bird watching. With binoculars and a camera or something. And a camera, that's what he was wearing, right. Um, Cause I really wanted to hate her. Why did you want to hate her? Because what she did could have threatened his life, could have caused his death. I understand, but why did you want to hate her?
because I have a store of self-righteous anger in me that good yeah. good to see but, that um, I, I just why did I want to hate her when I thought about what it must like to what it must be like to be her uh-huh. I could actually imagine what it might like to be her and how insecure she might be and how good. much she needed attention yeah good and, to see that um and while i would never say that to anybody mm-hmm. what she said i would never do what she did right i could imagine being like i imagined her to be um and that was a pretty uncomfortable yeah well it's good to see that because it gives us it's really one of the doorways to compassion is put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and we can see she's a scared person and she's acting out of her fear and her history and her conditioning and it's ignorance that's acting and her anger or something in response to criticism when she might have thought he was criticizing her for having her dog off leash whatever yeah fear as well but the, the other word that comes to mind is privilege which is called white privilege and yes. we can, you know a lot of people who are white think that their white is right, period. Right, right. So it's like, you know, of course I have my right to do whatever I want with my dog, wherever I am. She didn't threaten to do that until she noticed that he was videotaping her. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Yeah. Gonna, we, we're getting near the end and I, I'm getting a note about, uh, uh, Okay, and people are writing some other comments, which you can all see in the chat box. But um, uh, uh, it's a reminder for me to acknowledge, announce where um, there's going to be a white awake group. And let me see if I can find the the uh, the email I got about it today. So be patient with me for one minute before we end. And uh, okay. Oh, I see. There it is. Um, so, um, this isn't finalized, but I'm pretty sure this will all happen. There's going to be a program for investigating our white identity through the Dharma. And it's for people who identify as white and, uh, uh, Nina Gold and Eileen Spillane will be leading the group. Um, and they'll meet with the whole group on the first Tuesday of every month on Zoom starting in July. And so July through uh, the beginning of next year, and there'll be nine monthly 90-minute sessions. And many of us have done this kind of work. It's very helpful. It's very empowering to learn about white identity and very freeing to learn about it. So, um, and there'll be a lot more information posted when we have it up on the website. Um, We have to finalize that at a board meeting which will happen in the next day or two, something like that. Okay.
So, and um, time for us to end. Um, um, uh, let's sit for a minute and offer our compassion, our courage, and our love, first of all, to uh, George Floyd and his family, to Ahmaud Arbery, to Brianna Taylor, to Tony McDade, <clears throat> Nina Pop, to, to all the people who've been murdered in this way for the last 400 years, offering their good wishes. May this end. May this be done. May we awaken together, sending our good wishes to all people in this country, in this world, of all races, of all ethnicities, of all genders, of all economic means. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from the suffering of ignorance, of bias, of prejudice, of intolerance. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together including police, including Donald Trump. May we all awaken together and be free of our misunderstanding of reality. May we all awaken together, realizing our true nature, Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings everywhere be free. Just a reminder that the way that SF Insights survives is through your generosity. Please feel free to send a donation. You can go on to the website and there's, uh, I can never remember, there's a way to, you'll find a, a button to donate and there's a way to PayPal and uh, make it for the Sunday evening sitting. So thank you all. Please take good care. Keep fighting every day, and please be free. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.